Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. I always think because we get like a little count in, and I always think it's the metronome, and I'm like, imagine if we did a whole episode to a metronome and told the whole store. Can you imagine how annoying that would be? you said that in a previous episode. Probably. I think you said the exact same, that exact thing. Possibly. I don't think I have. I do listen to our episodes. Do you? Yeah. I don't. Fuck that. Wow. I'm kidding. Wow. Wow. How's your week been, Tama? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, not really much to report on, I guess. Just... Family came to visit. Yeah, that was just nice. That. Um, cats are going crazy as always. The second we've started recording, yeah, for some reason, Toffee, we the just middle like child, to keep it on brand. For some reason, the middle child Toffee's decided to start going behind the couch and Clawing swipe at the us back of it. before, like, and now she's eating something off the ground. We got our new podcast couch. Yeah, which we're currently sitting on and recording. We're currently in our podcast room as well, so yeah. we have. Um, one of the isolation projects, I guess, for us was converting um, the spare room, which was kind of just accumulating Crap. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't really being used for anything. Now we're kind of using it as like a mini studio. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of been my cave for making music, and now it's also the podcast room. The podcast room cave thing. And it also doubles as a spare room for if people come to stay over. For guests. Um, for guests. For our good guests. Guests want to come over. It's my birthday tomorrow. <clears throat> yeah, as of this recording, tomorrow is Laura's birthday. I think we've decided that we didn't like the new the new podcast day, did we? Monday didn't wasn't <clears throat> fun. No, it didn't work so out So we're doing too well. we're sticking we're going back to Friday, sorry for the confusion. So if you're listening to this, on the day it comes out it's my birthday. Yeah. So send me some love. Or don't. Or just do because I deserve it because I'm worth it. Oh, that was cute. We're going out to uh, a nice restaurant that I haven't disclosed to Laura yet. Yes, you have. Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah, no, <laughs> you I told me this it. afternoon. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I got a present that I'm really keen to give you. I'm very excited. I love presents. I um, love gifts. And we've got a party on Saturday. Yeah, we've got all a cake range. that one of my friends from work is making. It's all happening. Oh, also, I just wanted to like bring it to a, a bit of a serious note before we get into the episode. One of our very good friends, Noni, this week, who she's a true crime fan like us, um, I wanted to officially dedicate this week's episode to Chicken who is her puppy who sadly passed away this week. As cat owners, yeah. we know what it's like to lose a pet. It's like losing a part of your heart. So I'd like to formally dedicate this episode to Chicken, to the memory of Chicken. Noni, if you are listening, we love you. We love we Chicken. We love you, baby. And little baby will be missed by everyone. Mm. Uh, and on that note, uh, I guess... We'll just progress into the show. Whose turn is it? Because we asked this question when we were doing our yeah, research, but then uh, neither of us actually bothered to look. Should I just go first? I think you should go first because mine is relatively long. I'm pretty sure I went first last week, but I'll just... Fuck it. Let's switch it up. We're not a professional... We do what we want. ...scheduled we show. We do what we want. We're switching up gender roles in this household. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> also, you know what I've noticed? I, f- I feel a little like I'm in a jail cell and I just realised it's because we normally record in the lounge room and we just have the lamp on. Whereas in here, we have a big... It's very bright. It's very, very bright. I feel mm. exposed. Not sure I like it. We can adjust that as we go. Yeah, we'll figure it out. For this week's episode, we're recording live from the jail cell. Yeah. You know, we could put that new lamp that you got in here. I think that's a little too dim. I think it's kind of perfect. It's like noir lamp, like New York City. Problem is, if we ever wanted to do like a live recording video-wise, we do kind of need it lit. But So lit. For now, it's lit enough just with us having wine and being here. It's fucking lit, boys. It's so lit. <laughs> it's so lit. Um, so this week, I'm doing a story which is kind of scary in that once you start listening to it and you listen to some of the rhetoric that this woman put forth in her beliefs and you compare that to like what celebrities and influencers and like skinny tea and like drink tea until you shit yourself and you'll get skinny like all that sort of stuff it's kind of terrifying when you're like oh this is like low-key like wouldn't be surprised if this was happening in 2020 not in like 1911 i'm talking about linda hazard and the williamson williamson sisters and linda's sanitarium which was known by locals as Starvation Heights. Oh, God. Sounds great. Yeah. So, before we get into it, I've just done a little bit of backstory for kind of like both main parties in the story, so you kind of have an understanding of them. So, the Williamson sisters were Dorothea and Claire. They were two sisters in their early 30s, and they were rich as fuck. Mm. They were orphaned at a young age and placed into the hands of their wealthy grandfather. So they'd basically had a life of luxury, traveling the world, going to parties. Um, Sick. Keeping in mind, this is so they were. Early, this is like the nineteen hundreds. Um, eight late. Oh, late. Like 1900s. they would have been born in the eighteen nineties. Right. So this is like late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Okay. So they were complete hypochondriacs who would spend thousands of dollars on like the latest health trends and fads. They constantly believed that they had little things wrong with them, but were really wealthy enough to like jet set around the globe. So Mm -hmm. they weren't that healthy, but they were really interested in like alternative medicine and natural healings, which back in like the 1900s was not real. Like medicine was barely a thing, let alone alternative medicine. So Dorothea complained of swollen glands and rheumatic pains while Claire had been told by several different doctors that she had what's called a dropped uterus, which I didn't look up because I wasn't sure I wanted to know what it was. It doesn't sound good. (laughs) So the sisters at this stage when they meet Linda have already given up meat and corsets, which is very controversial for that time period. And especially for wealthy socialite women. Yeah, it's like... So they've already mm. given up meat and corsets in an attempt to like improve their health. Okay. So while traveling, they travel to British Columbia in the States. They're staying in the Lush Empress Hotel and they read an advertisement in a Seattle newspaper for a book by a Dr. Linda Hazard. They order it and inside the book is also a brochure for an Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala. 
which sounds it's just a really nice place to say. Olala. Olala. Where's that? O L A double L A. Olala. Interesting. Sounds Hawaiian. It does. Um, so being that they're both very interested in natural healing, this of course piques their interest and the sisters are picturing like a countryside estate with horses and open fields and As you do. fresh bone broth made from like the animals and vegetables on the property, which is not what it turns out to be, but that's what they have pictured in their heads. Right. I thought they gave up meat though. Well, they were trying something new. Obviously, they thought this was a new... Stop picking holes in my story, <laughs> Tama. It's not important, no, anyway, right? No, it's redacted, redacted. Yeah, redacted. edit that part out, you <laughs> fuck. Um, so that's the quick backstory of the sisters. So now, Linda. There is shockingly little that you can find on Linda's actual early life. Right. It's like super vague... I guess may- maybe it's not important. Like, maybe she just had a fairly normal life. Yeah, maybe it was just not significant at yeah. all. Yeah. But she was born December 1867 in Carver, Minnesota. Minnesota. Um, and, yeah, it appears that she had a pretty average early life. Okay. At age 18, she marries and has two children. However, in um, the late 1800s, she leaves then to pursue her career as a... Doctor. doctor, and that is pretty much all I could fucking find on the backstory of Linda Hazard. Right. So there is really not much. So there's a weird loophole in Washington licensing laws, which basically means you can call yourself a doctor and have a medical license with zero formal training. Huh. So you can just be like, yeah, I want to be a doctor, but fuck going to university yeah. and actually learning. I just want to like... Do a Ross Geller and call myself yeah, a doctor. I'm a doctor now. So Linda becomes obsessed with alternative medicine and she believes that the root of all disease is food, particularly overconsumption of food. And this is where it gets interesting, terrifying okay. when you consider the stuff that gets Just that statement alone days. is yep. fucking terrifying. So she believes <laughs> the path to health was limiting your intake to allow your digestive system to rest. Haven't we heard that before? Yeah, we have. Hazard preached that the human digestive system needed time to rest and benefited from regular fasts, which lasted days, weeks, or even months. Her idea was that fasting could rid the body of toxins and correct imbalances, therefore preventing future illness, aka the tagline of every juice cleanse you've ever seen. She called herself a fasting specialist and developed a really rigid system of restriction and started um, teaching her philosophy, which was, and I quote, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. Wow. That sounds fucking horrible. And this belief is first emphasized in her first book, which is Fasting for the Cure of Disease, which is the book that the Williamson sisters see advertised. Ah, So, what's kind of sad is that in her times, she actually represented a lot of really important things. Like, she was a wealthy, sort of self-made socialite, and she was a female doctor when there was none. Yeah, a prominent figure. And she was a pioneer for alternative medicine. However, she's also one of the most prolific female serial killers in history, with almost 40 victims. Oh, shit. Indirectly attributed to her. Holy fuck. Yeah. Wow. 
so by 1902, she has already had one death attributed to her and her regime. However, due to the fact that she um, doesn't have an actual proper medical license, the coroner can't directly pin the death on her. Right. And I found this part confusing because one article says that she doesn't have a medical license, but then later it says she has her medical license removed. So That's, I'm yeah, okay. not... License May- status is pending maybe for she, Linda Hazard. Maybe she got one throughout her her life yeah. as a doc- as a quote-unquote yeah, doctor. Yeah, maybe. Um, despite the fact that the coroner directly rules this person's death as death as a result of starvation, they can't pin it yeah. on Linda. yeah. So, when prosecutors question where the victim's expensive rings have disappeared to, Hazard is evasive and doesn't answer any of their questions. In the early 1900s, Linda meets Samuel Christian Hazard, who had already been kicked out of the army for misappropriating funds. He was a rogue, a cheat, and an alcoholic, and our Linda fell madly in love with him. As you do with men like that. As all these crazy women seem to Yeah. They're like, alcoholic, violent, gimme. Sign me the fuck up. Sign me up. Let's fast together. Mm. Um, But given that they were both scammers and highly fraudulent, they're both kind of suited for each other. I mean, yeah. So when he marries Linda, Samuel is actually still married to his previous wife. (laughs) And he's actually jailed for two years for bigamy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's released in 1906 where the couple moved to Washington for a fresh start. So basically Linda's like big dream is to have a, this thing called a sanitarium. She wants to start her own version of what at the time was called the Battle Creek Sanitarium or Kellogg Sanitarium. Yes. The same Kellogg's. That Kellogg's. That Kellogg's, which was started by Dr. Actual Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And was a premier wellness destination. However, this wellness retreat was actually good and it flourished and encouraged a low-fat, low-protein diet full of whole grains, fiber-rich food, and lots of nuts. It also encouraged fresh air, exercise, and good hygiene. So, like, all good things I can kind of get behind. Absolutely. Hazard wanted to create something that rivaled this and purchase some property in Olala, Washington. That's where Olala is. It's in Washington. Washington. Okay, so Linda's first proper well-documented victim, because the first one, I couldn't even find her name anywhere, so there's just, like, not much documentation for the very first victim in 1902. Yeah. Her first well-documented one is Daisy Maud, who was a Norwegian immigrant, and on February 26, 1908, dies at the age of 38 after 50 days of fasting. Holy shit. Leaving behind her three-year-old son, Ivar who ironically goes on to found an incredibly successful seafood restaurant chain. Oh, good for him. Hmm. Good for him. That's um, nice. One thing that I have to note on Linda's behalf was that the autopsy did note that Daisy also had um, quite late-stage stomach cancer and likely would have died due to her inability to properly yeah, take in food sure. regardless. But also... She starved herself to death. Yeah. So it's like... And ironically, Daisy's husband, John Ivor Hagland, actually in later times defends Linda at her trial, believing that the treatments worked and had continued to take their son three times a week even after Daisy dies. What the fuck? Right. Their three-year-old son. Yeah, dude, no. Stop. 
So Hazard's prescribed regime also includes plenty of enemas, some of which could last hours at a time. So for anyone listening who doesn't know what an enema is, it's basically a procedure where um, liquid or gas is pumped up your bottom to like flush everything out. And it's actually a genuine form of alternative. They yeah, use it still for today. alternative health. They also use it to clean your um, lower digestive tract out if they need, if you need to get an endoscopy or something like that. Yeah, which I'm sure is definitely useful in a lot yeah, of Yeah, and it can help with constipation and other digestive issues and a lot of like alternative health loving people swear by these things called coffee enemas. Yeah. However, they're not meant to last hours. <laughs> it's meant to be not. like a one or two flush yeah. situation. A I'm quick, pretty sure. smart I've never had solution. one. Yeah. But yeah. She also abdicated a form of massage that basically involved assaulting people where she would pummel her patients brows and backs with her bare fist and yell eliminate eliminate during the beatings what the fuck yeah so she's a bit cray cray (laughs) like a fucking robot from doctor who eliminate 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 exterminate what the fuck no i mean i'm no doctor but that just doesn't sound right. Her medical practice isn't quite questioned. I was like, what? You're not a doctor? <laughs> what? What? Why do you wear that white coat all the time? <laughs> um, so other victims that pretty quickly follow Daisy are Ida Wilcox in 1908, Blanche B. Tyndall and Viola Heaton in 1909, Maud Whitney in 1910, and Earl Edward Erdman in 1911. Despite these like rapid deaths, Seattle's health director of the time advises that as the patients are going willingly, there's literally nothing they can do to stop it. Yeah. Rich. On top of this, um, each time a patient dies, Linda writes it off as a different pre-existing condition like liver cirrhosis, oh, often completing her own autopsies in her bathtub first. However, once an official autopsy is done, the cause of death is always listed as starvation. Yeah. Questionable. And I mean, like, all the deaths are suspicious, but the only truly one is that of Eugene Stanley um, Walken in 1909, who's later found buried on the Hazards of Lala property with a gunshot wound to the head. Wow. Linda claims that he committed suicide. However, it's widely suspected that as he was the son of a lord, Linda thought he was rich and grew tired of him and killed him after finding out that he actually wasn't wealthy at all. What, what do you know what a lord was like? Just a, a role, probably a wealthy a t- person. I think it was, but I think it's also like a title that doesn't go away. So you could be a lord and be rich, and then lose all your money and still be a lord. Okay, I think. Maybe can't it's, say I know that much about. Maybe it's someone like your lordship. You're like a prominent, like a member of a manor. Maybe mm. like you're of a rich family. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lord can be given. Right, because I know it's a very respectful term yeah. to refer to a man like lord blah 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 it's interesting yeah, i don't know Should do some research we... someone else do some research i do enough research yeah, comment someone on our latest instagram someone send me post. a message explaining how lordship works please so going back to earl edward which was one of the ones i mentioned who passed away in 1911 he was a 24 year old civil engineer who suffered painful indigestion He'd seen several mainstream doctors who couldn't really help him. And when he heard of Linda, he's obviously 
really excited at the prospect of an alternative medicine that can help him. That's so sad. Yeah. Uh, so guy. he has his first treatment on February 1st and he's dead by March 28th. Oh, Jesus. He keeps a diary during his treatment, which really sort of highlights how strict and disgusting the diet is. Yeah. I'm going to kind of like, I have copied the entire thing into my notes, but I'm going to just like sweep through because it's pretty long. Yeah. So, first entry is Feb- February 1st, saw Dr. Hazard and began treatment this date. No breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. And then February 12th, one orange breakfast, one orange dinner, one orange supper. February 15th, one cup hot strained tomato soup night and morning. February 19th, called on Dr. Dawson today at his home, slept well Saturday night. February 20th, eight. Strained juice of two small oranges at 10 a.m. Dizzy all day. Ate strained juice of two small oranges at 5 p.m. So not even the orange, just the juice. The juice, that's... No. February 23rd. Slept but little last night. Ate two small oranges at 9 a.m. Went after milk and felt very bad. Ate two small oranges 6 p.m. February 25th. Slept pretty well Thursday night. Ate one and a half cups tomato broth 11 a.m. Ate one and a half cups tomato broth 6 p.m. Pain in right side below ribs february 26 did not sleep so very well friday night pain in right side just below ribs in back pain quiet in the night ate one and a half cups of tomato broth at 10 45 a.m ate two and a half plump small oranges at 4 30 p.m felt better in the afternoon than i have for the past week this basically continues the same yeah. way until march yeah. 28th and, and then he goes into hospital and dies that afternoon fuck man in 1911, Lewis E. Rader, who was a former Washington state legislator, seeks treatment for stomach pain. He originally starts treatment at home, however, eventually moves to Seattle Outlook Hotel, despite health inspectors desperately trying to convince him otherwise. However, by the time they get to him, he's so emaciated and delusional that he just tells them to leave. Shit. On May 11, after 37 days of fasting, he dies weighing less than 100 pounds, or as the rest of the world knows it, 45 kilograms at 5 foot 11. Fuck. Jesus Christ. Yeah. 5 foot 11 is like average height as well. Well, 5 foot 11 is tall. Tall, yeah. It's like and a he weighed 45 kilograms when he died. Shit. Yeah. Fucking hell. In 1911, also, Ivan Flux, an Englishman who had come to America to buy a <clears> ranch... Um, and had fasted for 53 days. During his fast, Hazard got control of some of his cash and property, and his family was told that he died with $70 left to his name. Fuck. So, Linda is basically, well, literally getting away with murder at this yeah, point. Because up. she's been said to have this, like, commanding, bewitching presence and manages to just convince people to believe in her. Well, yeah, she's convinced several people to starve themselves. Yeah, so locals and patients alike like locals of the town of Alala and yep. patients are all scared of her with some locals saying that patients would realize what was happening too late and they'd wander into town with their skeletal bodies begging for food and help. God. Her pattern is pretty straightforward though. She convinces patients to move out of the public eyes into her little like hospital in the woods Treatments run for four to six weeks with the richer patients being convinced to sign over all of their possessions at one stage during their delirium. Okay, so we've come full circle. 
In February 1911, the Williamson sisters visit Hazard for the first time after reading an advertisement for the sanitarium in her book. When they meet Linda, they're told that the sanitarium's not ready yet, but that Linda can treat them in Seattle. So without telling their family or relatives, due to the fact that their relatives already thought they were a bit batty because they're trying all this weird stuff, like, oh my God, you're not wearing a corset. (laughs) What will the village elders think? What will they believe? Um, So they don't tell anyone... They move into the um, Buena Vista apartments and start treatment right away from Linda. So they survive off one cop, cop of one oh. cock. One, <laughs> that's what I survive off. They survive off one cup of broth made from canned tomatoes, no more than oh, twice a Jesus day. Christ. Eventually, they may be able to eat a piece <clears throat> of fruit, but only occasionally. <laughs> And Linda also visits them regularly to give them their hour-long enemas and pummeling massages. She's noted as slowly starting to question the business affairs of the sisters, ask them what they're doing, what's going on with their estate, and like the good kind lady she is, she offers to store all their rings, jewellery, and real estate deeds in her office safe. Don't you worry about it, sweetie. I'll keep all that safe for you while I just stick this pipe up your ass and flush everything out for hours. (laughs) (sighs) Sounds so horrible. Nothing sus at all. Like, ugh. So by April, the sisters are both completely emaciated and delirious and are transferred to Wilderness Heights in Alala, a.k.a. Starvation Heights. Ah, yeah, right. At this stage, they're so frail, they actually have to be transported by ambulances. However, just before the ambulance leaves, Linda manages to get one of the sisters, Claire, to add a little section into her will that says, should she die... A monthly allowance of £25 sterling will be left to the Hazard Institute also, adding that in case of her death, she wants her body cremated under the charge of Linda and Linda only. At this time, the sisters are actually the only patients at the sanitarium. And when they first arrive at the compound, they both share a cabin with Linda who assures them that their withering bodies are a sign that everything is working as planned. Don't worry about that. That'll happen. And it's reported that this is the stage when Claire, one of the sisters, begins to sort of question what's happening. But by this stage, she's too weak to walk or go anywhere. Um, So, yeah, so she starts to question it, but at this time she's too weak to sort of walk or go anywhere or do anything. Um, shortly after this, they're separated with Claire being moved into the Hazard's private cottage. And shortly after that, a quote, doctor, who's actually Linda's husband, Samuel, gives her some paperwork to sign, which in her depleted state, she doesn't realize she's actually signed over her entire state. Oh, shit. Not only this, but she signed away both their bodies saying both of them can only be cared for and disposed of by the doctor and no one else. Oh, no. <laughs> Despite the fact that the sisters are essentially cut off from everything and not being allowed to access their own mail, Claire somehow manages to sneak a telegram back to their old nanny in Australia, Margaret Conway, mm-hmm. who is quoted as saying that the message is so, like, garbled and nonsensical that she knows straight away that Something's something up. is wrong. Yeah. And she sets off for Seattle, which back then is obviously by boat so it takes her a week to get there and sadly by the time margaret reaches seattle she's greeted by samuel hazard on the bus to the hotel and she's told that claire has died 
Margaret is told that Claire's died due to drugs administered to her as a child, which had shrunk her internal organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. Not the fact she hasn't eaten, eaten. for four months. Okay, right. When Margaret is taken to... And this part is kind of important. Mm-hmm. When Margaret is taken to view Claire's embalmed body, she's noted that nothing actually looks like her. Her hair colour, her face shape, her hand shape, everything seems different wow. and off. And she okay. doesn't believe that it's actually her. Margaret is then taken to Alala, where she's greeted by the human skeleton, a.k.a. Dorothea, who at this stage weighs 22 kilograms. Fuck, no way. Her seat bones protrude so harshly that she can't sit down without pain. And according to a nurse later, I don't even know how this would work, but you could feel her backbone through her stomach. How do you get to that point and then think, this is fine? Yeah, her lips are so like drawn back that she can't close them over her teeth. Oh my god. Yeah, Margaret is obviously horrified by this, and she also grows suspicious when she notices that Linda is wearing Claire's silk dressing gown, her hat, and her jewellery. Oh. And she notices this while Linda is delivering, delivering a report to her about Dorothy's disturbed mental state. So initially, Dorothea begs to be taken away, however, changes her mind the following day. As well as this, Linda informs Margaret that Dorothea actually can't leave because Linda is her legal guardian and she won't allow it. Mm. Margaret, being a nanny or a servant, is intimidated by this huge character of a woman who's also way above her stature, and she she leaves. So I'm sure she doesn't want to leave Dorothea, but there's not much she can do. She so can't she do leaves. anything, yeah. It's not until the sister's uncle, John Herbert, who's also a lawyer, returns to the farm and barters with Linda, eventually paying her $1,000, which... I did the conversion. Oh, nice. Works out to be about $26,000 in today's time Oof. To for Linda to release Dorothea. Dor- this is this part's really sad. So Dorothea thankfully returns to Australia, but is permanently disabled from this incident and can't care for herself. That's the thing. That, until she dies. That's the thing about this treatment is that even if you do recover from it and you start eating afterwards, the damage has already been done. Yeah. So, now that Dorothea is safe, though, Herbert is hell-bent on making Linda pay for Claire's death. Mm -hmm. So, finally, after recruiting British Vice Counsel C.E. Lucian Agassiz, Hazard is arrested and charged for first-degree murder in August 1911. The trial begins in January 1912, where crowds cram in to watch the trial because so many people around town knew her i've heard about it the local hunters in the were noted as saying that sometimes they would be in the woods and they would stumble across people who had escaped from the farm who were just wandering through the woods Whoa. like skeletal like begging for help Shit. yeah so people heaps of people are called in to testify against hazard Hazard also has her own witnesses to testify that her treatment worked and she angrily defends herself throughout the whole trial at this point, allegations are made that the hazards were working with the local mortuary and that the body shown to Dora was not that of her sister, but of someone else in order to hide her totally emaciated state. Oh, shit. So they've, they're accused of basically hooking up with the mortuary and when people would come to view the bodies of their deceased family members, they have different bodies to hide the fact that 
these people were so emaciated. Wow. Yeah. So on February 4th, 1912, uh, Linda is finally sentenced to two to 20 years hard labor in prison. She only ends up serving two of those years doing hard labor and continuing to fast during her time in prison to try and prove her cure. So after her release, despite being told that she can never come back to the United States, they move to New Zealand, save up enough money, and then a few years later return to Washington and actually build the original sanitarium that she dreamed of. Oh, right. Luckily... Her reputation precedes her and she doesn't have as many patients as she'd like. However, that's not to say that she has none and people are still going to yeah. receive treatment for her. Despite And everything. she actually goes on to kill another patient, Leonard Ritter, after an um, 84-day fast and she's only fined $100. What the fuck? Which, like, converted, I'm sure, is a lot of money, but it's still, like... But still, mm, it's... I'm sure anyone's jail She's this, committed like. a crime, again, after several other crimes she's been convicted for. Yeah. It's fucked up. So, <sighs> a few years later, the sanitarium burns down, which is rumoured to have been done on purpose for insurance money. Okay. By the late 1930s, Hazard is a bona fide guru to her very few followers. She's now in her 70s, and when she falls ill, she sets out to finally prove once and for all that her method works. It cures everything. She lays in bed for weeks, drinking only broth, and in the ultimate irony, in 1938, in the very same building where she killed Claire Williamson, Linda Hazard dies of starvation. Wow. That is poetic justice. I know, right? But also not really, because she, like, did it to herself and believed it would work, so... Well, that's the thing, is it's... She, in turn, died the way that she treated other people. Yeah. Believing that it would work, but in turn, it never actually worked. If you um, are listening to this and you want to see something that will haunt your dreams forever, you can look up. There's a photo of Dorothea. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah, I'll show you. There's a photo of Dorothea Williamson just after she leaves the sanitarium and it's so awful. She doesn't. It doesn't look like a human being. And this is while she's 20-something kilos, right? 22 kilograms. She does not look like a human being. She looks like a weird doll, but also corpse. Sorry, it's just before her rescue. So she's still at the Uh, sanitarium at this point. Like, she doesn't, it doesn't look real. It doesn't look like a human being. It looks like those, like, shrunken head things you see. She looks like a corpse. Doesn't look real. It's anyway, if you feel like having a look, because I probably normally we put photos like associated with the case on our Instagram when we post a new episode, but I don't really yeah, that's think that's much. appropriate for uh, that's her hair's all like ragged and yeah, she like, looks like, a, awful. like a corpse, she looks like a, yeah, a genuine she looks corpse. Like, she, you know, what she looks like you know, in the psycho movie. When you the, finally yeah. find out that um, his mother's dead. Mrs. Bates' body. And she, he flips around the chair. Yep. She legitimately looks like that, but just with, with eyes. With eyes, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah, That's it is a bit intense. really horrible. And that is the story of Linda Hazard. 
But yeah, she's indirectly attributed to potentially up to 40 victims. Oh my God. 40 victims and essentially no time except for two years served. Yeah, and she was only ever formally prosecuted for one. And people still went to her. Yeah, that's even after thing. she was jailed for it. Wow. It's crazy. It just goes to show, but that's what I was saying. Like, it's kind of terrifying because you look at some of the ways people follow those, like, tummy tea companies and, like, Khloe Kardashian is telling you to drink this tea that'll make yeah. you shit yourself. Like, Well, it's a similar similar concept. Like, a lot of these these people have actually gone to jail for selling things that genuinely people can't yeah. digest or live off of and they it's it's they sell them up. the face the false pretense that you can live off of this stuff and insert and integrate into your diet and they people go to jail for it mm-hmm. there's been so many cases of people going to jail for these remedies and then they get out of jail or they um pay their fines whatever and then they rebrand themselves as a different yeah. name and they do the exact same thing. That's the problem. These companies make so much money, they can just get away with it. They can. They really can. And they're backed by people like the Kardashians and yeah. other such influences that it's it's really no different. That yeah, story bad. is really no different to what we experience today. Yeah. Just they have much more influence than people would have back in the 1900s. Yeah, well, I guess nowadays people... <clears throat> They just don't have a special place where they bring you in and make you do it. Like, they just let you starve in your own house, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. But again, the same, they get away with the same concept of, well, we don't suffer any legal repercussions because, I mean, we're not forcing anyone to drink the tea. Like, we're not forcing anyone to have an eating yeah. disorder. And there's all loopholes around it where it's like, oh, we put in the instructions that you meant to have it with this yeah meal and yeah it's etc yeah i'm gonna say it again it's fucked up that's fucked up that's fucked up okay well i'm gonna jump into my person topic i guess for this episode so i'll be talking person or is it a it's one person basically isn't it well yeah but it's also an institution i suppose uh, like a so I'm talking about um David Koresh who was at one point the the leader of um the famous Branch Davidians of Waco, Texas. Waco, if you remember, was part of the I think it was like 51 day siege on the the ranch that they they lived on. Include and included many people getting shot and the burning building and a whole escapade of things. Essentially, it's it's insane the things that transpire uh, at the pinnacle of its um, of, the, of the events. I guess that that happened. So I wanted to go to talk about who he is as a person, how he gets into the cult, essentially. And how he becomes the head honcho of the cult and the things that he enforces as the leader of the cult. And it's one of those things, again, where it's like, this is just full on full on and fascinating. And it's a bit of a long one, so I don't know how long this podcast will be, but I don't think it'll be too lo- too much longer than our, our other show is. But it's a lot of information to digest. God, so. Tama. 
if you're um if you're into stuff like this and you haven't heard about it before you're going to learn some shit today basically so we're talking about vernon wayne howe he was born in houston texas august 17th 1959 his mother was bonnie clark she was 14 when she gave birth to to vernon his father bobby howe was a carpenter and a drifter and was 20 years old when he got bonnie clark pregnant he abandoned his pregnant girlfriend after meeting another young woman who caught his eye and left town with her sounds like a lovely yeah just a great person all around Bonnie soon begins another relationship with a man who was reportedly a violent drunk. And they got ma- married, however, the marriage only lasts two years. During these two years, according to Vernon, it was a very difficult time due to mistreatments by his stepfather. So it's, uh, apparently he was very abusive and drunk, obviously. When the marriage dissolves, Vernon was taken in by his maternal grandmother, Erlene Clark. He reportedly grew into a likable but mischievous child who was highly active and was even given the nickname Sputnik on account of his boundless energy after the Soviet satellite. Hmm. By age six, Vernon was taken back in with his mother, who had now married another man named Royal Roll, sorry, Royal Haldeman. That is a great name. Yeah, Roy Haldeman. Oh, I thought you said Royal. No. I thought you said his name was Royal. Sorry, okay, I was fucking up exciting. the name really badly. God, Tom. I don't know what it is about like such small <sighs> words like that. It's just Roy Haldeman. Keep going. Mm-hmm. She's got me excited for nothing. <laughs> Royal Haldeman. When he moved back in with his mother, she was already pregnant and in 1966 gave birth to Vernon's younger brother, Roger. So I believe she was 21 at this stage. Vernon reportedly struggled in elementary school, so much so that he was placed into remedial classes. So remedial classes like remedy, like a, like, sorry, like a remedy is basically supposed to improve you specifically in school subjects that you haven't done well in. Yeah. So like special classes. It's just classes. supposed to like help you catch up, basically. Yeah, exactly. Due to this, the other kids at school soon deemed him with the new nickname of Mr. Retardo. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's bad. I just took a mouthful of wine. <laughs> that was a bad time to drop that nickname on me. Yes, yeah, sorry. It went up my nose. <clears throat> Years later, Vernon would recall this ostracism from his classmates and how much it affected his self-esteem. So a direct quote from him was uh and I quote, I mean you're, you know, here comes the retarded kids, and it's like I stopped in my tracks. But it's- he had the best theme song. Domo arigato, Mister Retardo. Sorry, I had to. Twenty twenty. I don't know if that's gonna fly. That song. Imagine if that was actually the song. Domo arigato, Mister Retardo. That'd be fucked up. That would be very. You know, it's it's like not the Black Eyed Peas song, like Let's Get Retarded. Yeah. How fucking weird was that? I got away with that. Right? File it under songs that didn't age well. I don't get the song anyway. Let's get retarded. It's let's supposed to be like, let's get development. so drunk that like we can't oh, speak or walk or we're... Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's, that's it's, it's bad. Up. It's so bad. Okay. So it's thought that his academic struggles were due to Vernon suffering from dyslexia. 
which uh, was a condition at the time, was a condition that was very little, that received very little recognition. And as well as this, he started, he suffered from a stutter. However, despite this, he was not a stupid child. He had a natural mechanical ability and loved pulling gadgets apart and putting them back together. By the time Vernon was a preteen, his mechanical affinity had led him to an interest in cars and music, and he began teaching himself how to play the guitar after finding a broken, abandoned guitar in a barn that he fixed up himself. That's cool. Apart from cars and music, Vernon was also interested in religion. So his family were Seventh-day Adventists and would often accompany, he would often accompany his grandmother to the church. So he grew up on the moral confines at the, of the worship, which meant that chasing after, which meant he couldn't chase after girls, wasn't allowed to take drugs, and he couldn't go to teen parties. So they were all condemned in his church. Mm. So essentially it's just a, a Nothing Christian fun. church, but a conservative yeah. branch, I, I suppose. So uh, while other teens were experimenting with these activities, Vernon was busy reading the Bible and watching everything he could find on TV or in books or magazines that related to religion. By the age of 10, he was able to recite long passages of scripture and would give his own small sermons at home. Vernon discovered that he could combine his passion for scripture with an effort to try and overcome his speech impediment. He would listen to powerful sermons on the radio and would often recite the preacher's words, trying to mimic and emulate their vocal skills of the speaker and discovered that when he did so, his stutter would disappear. Hmm. So after dropping out of Garland High School in his junior year, at the age of 18, he started working as a carpenter in Garland. Here he met and began a relationship with a 15-year-old girl who soon fell pregnant? Um, who soon fell pregnant due, uh, from, obviously, their relationship. This woman's father became very enraged and forced her daughter to break the relationship off and warned Vernon to stay away from here from her. Vernon was in love, but saw no other option other than to heed the father's advice. By now, the family was living in Tyler, Texas, where he approached his local Seventh-day Adventist elders and told them of his dilemma. So he told them that he felt a moral obligation to marry the woman, but to his surprise, the elders attempted to persuade him against doing so. And after a few attempts of him trying to reason reason with them via scriptures, they grew very angry with him and and in the end ordered him to leave the church. So as a result, he and his entire family were excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this thoroughly disgusted and pissed off Vernon. So he began looking for alternatives. Okay. Soon after, he was told of a group called the Branch Davidians, who were based in Waco, Texas. Hmm. And this is where it all starts. The Branch Davidians are an offshoot of an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists. So the original group was founded in 1929 by Bulgarian immigrant Viktor Hautev. Originally called the Shepherd's Rod, the sect was set up in Waco, Texas, and they believed that the apocalypse would occur in 1959. Well, they were wrong yes. about that. When this obviously did not fucking happen. Apparently it's in 2020. <laughs> they were just a few years too early. Yeah. 
Um, so when this obviously did not happen, a group broke away under the leadership of a man named Benjamin Roden. He began the group that is now called known as Branch Davidians in recognition of their holding to the coming restoration of the Davidic Kingdom of Israel. In 1978, Roden passes away and his wife Lois takes over leadership of the church. Vernon arrives two years later to the Branch Davidian compound in 1980. The now 20-year-old had long flowing hair, a charismatic personality, and a modest self-effacing manner. Mm. Essentially meaning he was... A cult leader. Well... So self-effacing is basically you're not trying to draw attention to yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're a very placid person. You're just trying to like make sure everyone else is happy. So he appeared as a stri- extremely spiritual to those he met at the camp compound, holding himself to a strict moral code and judging himself as chief among sinners. He turned up with a guitar and the desire to reach young people with the message of the Lord. Lois Roden was immediately taken with Vernon and invites him to move into the compound. Before long, the two become romantically involved, despite Lois being in her now 60s. Lois allows Vernon the opportunity to become... Sorry, that took like a moment to like stick in my brain. Yeah, so he's 20. I mean, no judgment. Love, hate, love, but but also a little bit of judgment. Uh, Yeah. Just Just a iota. Lois allows Vernon the opportunity to become a prominent teacher within the compound. She would give him time at the pulpit so he could expound his scriptural interpretations of the, con- at the to the congregation. Sorry. So he gives him time at her pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I don't want to hear the interpretations of her pulpit. Uh, so reportedly his teaching styles were very different to what common churchgoers were used to. For example, he wore jeans with a t-shirt and spoke with illustrations that were often startling di- direct. Oh, so he founded Hillsong. Yeah, I guess kind of, yeah, <laughs> really. Honestly. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? On one occasion, he likened sin to snot on a person's finger that you can't just get off. Huh, that's an interesting... I, As much as he's a psychopath, I do like that metaphor. Yeah. Well, this is kind of before he becomes... I hate those little rolly boogers that yeah. like you pick out and then you, you just, just can't get rid of just can't flick it off. That's what sin is. Sex before marriage. It's just one of those sin things you can't get rid of. Sin is the booger on your finger you can't flick off. No. So above all else, he acknowledged himself as imperfect, weak, and sinful. And his natural charisma, unkempt looks, down-to-earth attitude, and his deep spiritual knowledge were a potent mix. He purposely positioned himself in the light of Jesus in opposition to the stide, formulaic, and hypocritical uh, Pharisees of the mainstream religion. He further began to proclaim the gift of prophecy. So after a few months of... After he moved in, Lois makes the bombshell public announcement that she is now pregnant with his child. Boo, 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 boo. Oh, fuck. She tells her followers that this is all part of God's divine arrangement due to him now of course she does. being a quote-unquote They're not prophet. married, are they? No. Yeah, but so she's like, uh, yeah. He's uh, a prophet. So we're not, but he's uh, the second coming of Jesus, so it's Essentially, fine. Essentially, yeah. It's totally fine. Filed under things women will say to get out of being slut shamed. <laughs> so unfortunately, she would then go on to miscarry the baby. Oh, that's that's genuinely yeah. sad. Still, she 
elevates Vernon as her spiritual heir and the next leader of the Branch Davidians. Now, this is both kind of horrible, but funny in a way. Okay, I love this. Because... When you want to laugh, but you feel bad? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So many people in the congregation were in agreement with Lobbis' um, decision to make Vernon her successor. However, at this time, Lois has a son named George that she had with her previous husband who founded the church. Oh, George gets the shaft. George <laughs> gets the shaft, essentially. And sees Vernon as a dangerous usurper who shamefully manipulated his way into his mother's good graces and was and now her poised other graces. to take over the leadership that was rightfully George's to inherit. Well, I mean, he's not... You kind of see what I mean? Where totally it's like, wrong. That's fucking horrible, but also kind of hilarious that you're the son of the person who founded the church, but some young dude comes in with his long hair and long dick. Fucks your mum. And takes over the whole fucking operation. Oh, dear. How fucked up. Yeah. So, over the next three years, Vernon and George would play out a power struggle within the congregation, splitting uh, people between the two. Tensions rose to its peak when, in 1984, George and his armed supporters forced Vernon and about 25 of his followers to leave the compound at, at Mount Carmel. Okay. For the next two years, and this is one of those weird, not not ironic, but kind of like poetic things. Mm. For the next two years, uh, Vernon and his group would situate themselves at Palestine, Texas. Oh, yeah, that is a bit yeah, weird, right? I, I see what you mean. Yeah. So Palestine, Texas is about 90 miles away from where they were in Waco, Texas. And they were forced to live in buses and tents. During this time, Vernon would continue his attempt to build up followers through his music and his, char- his charisma, and he was successful in attaining new members from far and wide. 1985, he travels to Israel with his now pregnant wife, Rachel Jones, who was one of the congregation members in Waco, Texas. During his time in the Holy Lands, he becomes convinced that he is the modern-day incarnation of King Cyrus of Persia. Right, as you do. Yeah. He claimed that he has been tasked with opening the seven seals of the Book of Revelation and proclaiming them to the world. Okay. Yeah. Meanwhile, at Mount Carmel, George Roden was acting increasingly erratic, causing a lot of his followers, his following, sorry, to steadily decline. Many in the compound openly supported Vernon and longed for his return. Lois Roden passes away in 1989. George is now determined to eliminate the threat that Vernon poses for his leadership. So for some fucking dumb reason, he decides that the best way to sort this out is to challenge Vernon to a resurrection competition. What the fuck? Just, re- okay, think about what it is. That's exactly what well, it is. I have, well, I kind of have two thoughts of what it could be. Either you kill someone else and have to resurrect them, or you're supposed to kill yourself and no. resurrect? So... What the first one? No, no. So what it was, and what George did was he dug up a body. Oh, okay. To resurrect, right? And then Vernon was supposed to do the same, 
And whoever successfully resurrected someone would become the leader. Right. So what happened when neither of them could do it? Here's the thing. Whoever... Whoever could, so like I said, whoever could successfully raise a dead person would be acknowledged as a leader of the church. Now, this is completely fucking batshit crazy, correct? Yeah. Yep. George follows through and exhumes a body from a gravesite. As you do. After hearing of this challenge, Vernon immediately goes to the authorities and makes a complaint that George has been tampering with a dead body. What? As you uh, fucking should. Fuck with. So, uh, to ascertain proof, Vernon is told um, that. So, sorry, um, authorities tell Vernon that he cannot actually. They cannot actually do anything unless he supplies them with photographic evidence. So, in an effort to ascertain said proof, Vernon leads seven armed supporters of his into Mount Carmel. Hmm. So, before they're able to find the exhumed body, they're discovered by George's followers, and a gunfight breaks out between the two groups. In the skirmish, Roden is injured, and police soon after break up the battle with Vernon and his followers being arrested and put on trial for attempted murder, only to be acquitted on all charges. So, over the next few years, despite this crazy fucking ordeal, and the fact that someone's dug up a body and someone's reported it, nothing really happens. Right. And in... Palestine, Texas, Vernon's following is growing while in Mount Carmel, George's following is decreasing uh, as he begins to be more rational. Well, yeah, they're like, dude, you dug up a dead body. Yeah. Like, sure. One of his followers actually challenges him, claiming to be himself the Messiah. George loses <laughs> I control. you to a resurrection battle. George loses control and kills the man with an axe. Huh. Resurrect that, you fuck. Afterwards, George is subsequently sent to a hospital for the criminally insane. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Probably where he should be. Yeah, definitely where he should be. So here's the thing. George's absence now has paved a way for an opportunity for Vernon to come back. Take control. With his following to return to Mount Carmel. And obviously, due to the murder that George has committed... A lot of his followers. Yeah, the bar's now, set pretty low yeah, as well. Now they don't they don't follow him whatsoever. Yeah. Vernon's obviously the clear the better of the two evils. Yeah, for or sure. not even really the better of two evils. He's the better person. Yeah. Essentially. So Vernon now is the complete undisputed leader of the Branch Davidians. Soon after this, he soon after his return, sorry, he legally changes his name to what he's now referred to as David Korish. So the word Korish is the Hebrew name for Cyrus, which, okay. as you know, he is the re- human reincarnation. He's the yeah. reincarnation of Cyrus, yeah. the king of Persia, who um, obviously David was convinced that he would. Yeah. So with the new name and the conviction that he he has a new now he has a new name and he has a new conviction that he is much more than just a prophet. He is the modern day Messiah, and the words that he spoke were divine origin. <clears throat> yep. So as the 1990s um, dawn, David Koresh, who is now 30 years of age, is a self-proclaimed messiah with a young wife and two children. <clears throat> he now presides over more than 100 faithful adherents who live together in one single large building. 
having mastered his fusion of religious music and inspirational um, uh, proselytizing, that's right, proselytizing, Kotesh's sermons could last all day and all night with his believers hanging on to every single word he says. So Koresh begins to use his position as the revealer of God's will to announce supposedly divine decrees that slowly but surely became more personal mm. to Koresh. Yeah. <clears throat> the Probably the most controversial of which was that all the women of the complex in the compound were to be available for him at any time for his sexual pleasure. Gross. This includes all the married women as well. Gross. So men had to forcibly allow Koresh to... Have sex with their wives. With their wives. Yeah, cool. Chill. <laughs> Super chill. And that's... Okay, so there's three major p- points in this thing. That's point one. Point two... This didn't necessarily limit itself to adult women. No. Some girls as young as 12 years of age became sexual partners at some stage. So because they had been convinced that they had to give themselves over to God in the form of Koresh, they thought this was the greatest privilege that they could attain to. Oh, sweetie. Honey. Number three. The men at Mount Carmel, including those who were married, were to remain celibate. Oh, yeah, cool. So only he was allowed to dip his dick. In the 12... Oh, no. Yeah. That makes me sad. So it's like this... It goes from seemingly crazy, but normal. To just crazy. To fucking insane. Yeah. Like, sure enough, he storms the place with guns and seven other men with guns to ascertain proof of like the fact that someone's dug up a dead body but at least he knows that digging up a dead body is wrong yeah to now having sex with children is totally fine yeah yeah and the thing is he we we know from his childhood that he's a neglected child yeah and wasn't very popular in high school and has been forced to remain celibate um well, well has his moral religious um his moral compass told him to remain celibate well his religion told him to remain celibate until marriage and that he couldn't you know so um because the men were supposed to remain celibate this was because there was only one seed that was holy and it flowed from koresh As a result, the majority of the children within the complex were his. At the time of his death, he was father to 15 sons and daughters. Ew. While most members accepted this arrangement as the will of God, there were a few, a handful, that left the church because of it. <clears throat> Some of which were Australian. Ah, well, there you go. There you go. And after returning back to Australia, they fucking zipped it right to the American embassy and press charges yeah, and we're like, of hey, child abuse. This is fucked up. Yeah. And back in the US, um, a similar thing was happening with other defectors who made similar charges. So, in response to these allegations, and this is where things kind of t- start to, s- to snowball, <clears throat> Child Protective Services sent investigators to the Mount Carmel complex. 
Now, they were mostly there to access the validity, validity sorry, of accusations that children had access to firearms, not necessarily to the sexual um, assault allegations. Yeah, because why would you? Yeah. Because, like, children being raped is, like, right. not an issue. But, goddamn, if you have a firearm and you are underage, the NRA yeah. will be so far up your ass. Motherfuckers. Scorch shows the agents that the firearms are all kept under lock and key, and consequently, Child Protective Services closed the case. They're like, cool, no worries, see ya. Cool, easy, sounds great to me. (laughs) However, in the wake of of this and the defection and people pressing charges against him, Koresh grows increasingly angry and violent towards his followers. When one of his female followers expresses the desire to take her child and leave the church, he denies her permission, and to teach her a lesson, he rapes her. Yeah, no. Stop it! What's worse is he later goes on to recount the incident to his entire congregation, warning them. Stop it. Stop it. Yep. Just don't do it. Not good. <clears throat> Around the same time, his sermons grew darker with a constant theme of the coming day of judgment. This is all starting to become, to sound a bit more familiar, yeah. isn't it? So he tells his followers that Armageddon was going to be initiated right there at Mount Carmel and they had to prepare to give their lives in order to usher in the new Davidic kingdom. Right. That's just what you <clears throat> want to hear. Yes. So by 1992, Korosh had this mentality that they would have to spark up a war against the governmental authorities, which he proclaimed were the agents of the devil, um, and that they should start preparing for a cataclysmic showdown with them and the true followers of God who were holed up in Waco. Mm. <clears throat> so by divine inspiration, Korish reveals that he has been instructed to stockpile weapons at the compound. Okay. So keep in mind this is divine Inspiration, correct? Yeah. Korosh soon's learned that trading guns is quite a lucrative business. Huh. Providing much-needed funds for the ongoing costs associated with the compound. Nice little side hobby. So he would have his members buy cheap weapons and then would pawn them off at gun trade shows. And any excess funds would then be used to build up the arsenal at the Mm. compound. All the while... Information on the weapons presence at Mount Carmel was being passed on by the agents that had visited from Child Protective Services mm. to the FBI, who mm. then in turn passed it over to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Mm. It's all coming it's together. It's all coming together now. So it wasn't for nothing to, to basically let you know. The ATF begins surveilling the property. Things take a progressive turn when a UPS delivery with a package was seen by agents to contain grenades, which are obviously fucking illegal. Yes. This discovery leads to an eight-month-long investigation which reveals a trail of everything from grenade launches to assault rifles ending up at Mount Carmel. By early 1992, the ATF has amassed enough evidence to take Koresh into custody. The only... Complication. He's not going to go quietly. He has an army of devout yeah. followers. With, <laughs> with fucking grenade launchers. Yeah. You just said it yourself, bro. Yeah. He has grenade launchers. So this is the, this is the only thing that they're really fucking worried about. Yeah. Which as, it's, <laughs> it's probably, fair enough. Yeah, That's pretty fucking crazy. So, 
They could have arrested him while he was in town buying supplies, but for some stupid fucking reason, they, they choose not to. Yeah. Because why would you? That would make way that too would make, much sense. Yeah, that would save so much money and lives. Instead, they place undercover agents in a small cabin that is situated right in front of the entrance oh, of the compound. God. <clears throat> One of the members uh, of the ATF, Robert Rodriguez, manages to befriend members of the group and gets himself invited to a Bible study class where he oh. would observe Korish up close. The ATF concludes that Koresh was an imminent danger to society who could unleash his followers and their lethal force upon any target at any time. They decide the best course of action was at this stage to stage a raid on the complex. And the date was set for February 28th, 1992. I'm just going to take a quick water break. Closing up. You feel the walls closing in. It's getting tense. It's getting tense. An hour before the raid was scheduled to go down, undercover agent Rodriguez goes into the compound to show Korish the morning's copy of the local newspaper. With its headline reading, The Sinful Messiah Alongside a Picture of Korish. Koresh, who had already been informed that there was a build-up of law enforcement and media around the area, told Rodriguez that he already knew the ATF were coming to attack him. After leaving Mount Carmel, Rodriguez hurries back to warn his ATF bosses that Koresh already knows about the surprise raid. However, he's too late. Fully armed agents were already closing in on the compound. To this day, it remains unclear as to which side fires first, but within minutes, a fierce firefight is underway. Over 70 ATF officers surround the building while army helicopters circle above. Inside, Branch Davidian members opened fire on the invaders who had come to take Korish away. The shooting lasts around more than 60 minutes. Korish is hit in the wrist while six of his followers are shot dead. Four ATF agents were also killed in the gunfire. Jesus. As the fighting continues, Korish makes a phone call to the local police department urging the raid to stop. However, they don't listen. And after hanging up, he proceeds to move upstairs. It's here that he is wounded again, but this time more severely, with a bullet penetrating his hip, confining him to the floor. When the shooting ceases, the ATF had multiple casualties, but no David Korish. The FBI soon intervenes and condemns the ATF's actions and their handling of the raid. Mm. So now Waco's under worldwide attention and new, with new men in charge, were, they were determined to end the standoff as soon as possible. <clears throat> the final badish, battle sorry, <clears throat> that Koresh had been proclaiming was finally upon him and his followers. With him were 117 of his followers, 46 of which were children. Oh, that's sad. Nobody wanted to leave, however, Koresh sent out 14 of the children none of which were his in the days after the raid. The siege lasts for about 51 days. Korish, his main preoccupation is to get his message out about the seven seals out to the world. So the raid obviously has sparked a huge media frenzy and he believes he can use this to his advantage to publicize his message. So for hours, he proselytizes over the phone to the FBI negotiators 
And three days after the raid, Koresh agrees to bring out all of his followers if he could get one of his sermons aired on the radio. FBI fully complies with his demands, however, Koresh doesn't meet his end of the deal, um, claiming that God had told him to hold off until he receives further instructions. Fourteen days now passing, food, water, and milk for the children was running dangerously low. Koresh tells his followers that the hardship they're facing is a direct test of their faith in him. Things progressively get worse when the FBI cut off all power to the complex and begin playing loud music accompanied by bright, shining lights all throughout the night, preventing the Branch Davidians from sleeping, Mm -hmm. trying to pressure them out. However, still, the people inside would not budge. Slowly throughout the siege, Koresh had been letting people out, but had now declared that no one else would leave Mount Carmel so long as the government kept up this form of torment. Increasingly frustrated, the FBI brings in Abrams tanks, which are essentially small APD tanks, um, and proceeds to smash and destroy all property outside the compound, including vehicles. With the tactics failing, the FBI allows a defense attorney hired by Koresh's mother to go in and talk to his client, Koresh. Koresh tells the lawyer that he knows the government will not let him leave alive. And even though the FBI had offered to arrange a worldwide television broadcast of his message if he promises to come out, he refuses to trust trust them and in turn refuses the offer. By April 14th, Koresh announced that that God had instructed him to write down the entire message of the seven seals of Revelation. And upon completion of the work, he would he promised that the siege would be over for the branch of Indians and they could come out. This offer, however, was never passed on to the Attorney General Janet Reno, who on April 17th authorized a plan to use tanks and tear gas to bring the siege to an end. And this is where <clears throat> everything comes to its conclusion. Mm. 6 a.m., April 19th, an FBI agent phones in to Koresh and tells him that tear gas is being placed in the building by mechanical arms attached to the tanks. He stresses to them that it's not an assault and he implores them not to retaliate with weapons. The tank smashes through the building as it's delivering the CS gas. Inside was complete agony. People are unable to breathe, reportedly feeling as though their throats and their lungs were on fire. Still, no one comes out. Six hours after the attempt, for some reason a fire starts to erupt and quickly grows out of control. Still, no one comes out. Jesus. As the fire grows, 79 people were killed, 22 of which were children. Oh, that's so sad. Koresh then makes his way to the chapel, and as the flames grow around him, he dies of a gunshot wound to the head. To this day, no one knows whether or not he claimed his life. Jesus. So the thing about the fire is it's also not known whether or not it was caused by the grenades or it was started within the building itself. Yeah. Because there was a few shady things surrounding the FBI and the grenades. Is is um, I think it was a district attorney or a, a prosecutor um investigated the Waco um crime scene and found the grenades that were, that were used and he she went to the FBI and said these are the grenades you use and they're like no no we didn't use those grenades 
And then she mm. said, these were found at the compound. You use these grenades. And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, they're our grenades. We use those. Right. So it's a bit sus. Yeah. <clears throat> but again, it's, you know, it could it's... have just as easily been started within the compound itself. It's also really interesting that you brought up that notion, and uh, not notion, the technique they were using with the bright lights and loud music. Because I don't know if you've seen online all these conspiracy theories going around about uh, the fireworks currently in places where there are really heavy Black Lives Matter protests. And apparently there's been reported that like fireworks basically go off continuously between like 12am and 4am. Oh. And there's all these conspiracy theories going around um, <clears throat> that it's a tactic by the government to try and break people's spirits and not let them sleep so right. they stop protesting. Wow, I just interesting. found that really interesting that you brought that up. It's <clears throat> well, a it's genuine obviously tactic a, it's a that tactic. they use. Yeah, obviously that they're yeah. using to try and forcibly um, break people's spirits. Wow. That's <clears throat> yeah. a very strange coincidence. I didn't think that was too long. That didn't feel no, long at all. No, no. It felt like a fucking decade writing that thing, but... No, it didn't feel yeah. long at all listening <clears throat> to it, though. Cool. Great. Well, yeah, that was that was the story of, of Korosh and the um davidians the branch davidians the infamous story of the waco cult and it's so interesting that you know these cultist leaders fall under the same fucking umbrella you know they they arise unexpectedly into these leadership roles and just fucking go crazy lose it they have zero regard for the people around them and their followers, and and it turns into this like it's no longer a religious thing, even if they it's think like a it pride is. thing. Yeah, it's yeah, a, for sure. I mean, like just the I'm a prophet. I speak to God, and God tells me that you need to fuck me. Yeah, that's gross. Like, no, <clears throat> no. You're sir. a child, and you need to fuck me. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah, not cool at all. No. I just can't believe he managed to get a hundred over a hundred people to follow him, even though like twenty of those were his children. And even right at the end, no one wanted to leave. No, well they they wanted that. to leave. Oh, did he they? He wouldn't let them. Oh, right. Supposedly. So I think it was a large majority of his followers died. Yeah, it sounds with like only it. a handful of them surviving, which is very sad. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I wanted to read more into the survivors and what they had to say, but I didn't want it to go too long. So I might save it for another episode. I might save an, a, whole, a whole entire episode for just Waco in general. That would be interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, um, survivors. Maybe even, like, a cultist survivor episode where I talk about That would Heaven's be Gate. cool. Yeah, we could do an I Survived episode. Yeah, maybe we can do that. Because I want to do... Um, there's a story that I think is just amazing that I would love to tell. Cool. Of an I survived victim. Well, yeah, let's do it. Maybe yeah. um, next week or the week after. Yes, let's do it. Awesome. Well, that was it. Um, that was the episode. That was the episode. Uh, I don't know how to end yeah, this. Yeah, we haven't gotten any better at ending these yet, have we? I mean, what's something we can end this on? <laughs> Like I currently a, uh, have a tiny kitten asleep in my arms. She's getting bigger as well. She is getting bigger. She's a good girl. <clears throat> we started having to implement dry food into a diet 
because she she's gone to the stage yeah, where she's losing weight instead of gaining it. She's a bit of a sickly <coughs> kitten. We've had some health issues with her, but hopefully yeah, she's on the mend, I yeah. hope. It's been a bit of a fucking struggle, but she's so damn cute and we love her. So. Yeah, she's a baby. She's my baby. She'll make it. Um, but yeah, aside from that, my birthday's tomorrow. I'm very yeah. excited. So excited. So excited. Um, and yeah, had a pretty good week. Oh, Handmaid's Tale season, <gasps> season four. Season four, the trailer <clears throat> dropped today, but it's not coming out till Til 2021. Yeah, which I kind of expected, but it's still like, I just whatever. What's the point in dropping a trailer then? That's what I don't Well, they get. usually drop a trailer the year before things come out. Yeah, I guess, but it's like, just don't get my hopes up. Yeah, I mean, not every show can be like Game of Thrones where they go every year it's a new season. Yeah, I guess so. All right, well, I guess on that note, we'll... uh, I guess the outros don't really need to be long. Like, we already have a little chat at the start, like... No, they don't really need to chat at the end. This is kind of just for the people who are psychopaths as well and want to kind of listen past the stories and... Hear us yarn about bullshit. For like Did you just say minutes. yarn? Yeah. That is the most Australian thing we've said on this podcast. What? Have a yarn? Have a yarn, mate. There's actually yarn right there. There is yarn right there. How interesting. I also love how I have one kitten asleep in my arm and then another one eating my hair. <laughs> and I can't do anything about the one eating my hair because yeah. my hands are filled with the other one. Well, she's also rubbing her head on your head. They're honestly... Yeah, a fucking nightmare, but God, I love them. Anyway, they've all got such very different personalities. They're they're weirdos. They're all weirdos. But we're weirdos, so it works out well. Yeah, it makes us a weird family, and I kind of like that. Yeah. Well, as always, thank you for listening. Um, As I said at the beginning, I think we're going to go back to our Friday schedule. I don't know. I just... Monday didn't seem to work out that well for us. I think Friday is a good time to drop it. I mean, if if it's Friday for us, it's Thursday Thursday for for America. For America. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like Friday is a good time to drop it because I don't really know anyone who's going, oh, you know, Saturday. Well, I guess it's like Monday, like your Monday commute. I don't know. I don't know. The podcast that I listen to, I don't necessarily, you know, yeah. Go, oh, fuck, it's podcast day. Like, they're just kind of there, and then I go, all right, well. Yeah, true. Let's chuck one on. Anyway, moral of the story, we're back to Friday, Friday morning uploads. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and Wednesdays will stick for the mini-sodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, yeah um, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, it's my birthday. Leave us a comment. Send me love, money, gifts. Yep. All of which. All of the above. Give Laura your birthday wishes. Uh, leave a comment of any th- uh, thoughts you have. <clears throat> um, leave us a review. That can be my birthday yeah, gift. If you're listening to this, leave me a birthday five-star review yeah. on wherever you listen to this. We thank you. And aside events. from that, if you're listening to this on a Friday, have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. If you're listening to this on another day, have a great week. You may be listening to this. If the podcast goes long enough, you might be listening to this in 2022. And if you're listening to this in 2022, that's really weird. And I wonder what the future is like. And hello to future people from 2020. I don't know why I just went on that strange tangent. That was very... Tangent. <laughs> yeah, that was fucking <laughs> weird. But okay. 
And uh, the word you're looking for is anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, let's End call it, it that. Thank, End. You. Okay. Thank you for yep. listening. Bye. Bye.